to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, editor of the magazine. Well, it's been 50 years since Jackson Brown recorded Dr. My Eyes, his first hit single, released in early 1972 and a song that appeared on his debut self-titled album of the same year. In it, he confesses to trying to see the evil and the good without hiding. 15 albums, 8 Grammy nominations and an Americana Free Speech in Music Award later, he's still addressing big issues on his latest album, Downhill From Everywhere, his first album in nearly seven years. I had an extended conversation with Brown prior to the release of the album and I've not only included all of it here with a discussion about his very early career prior to his solo recordings, but I've also added some music excerpts so you can listen to what Jackson is talking about. Hey man, how you been? I've been pretty good. How are you? You've uh, you you had a bit of a health scare with the the virus. How are you going? Yeah, it was not that big a deal. I mean, I have to say that I mean, what's going on? What what's happening for every what's happening for everybody? Of course, is a huge concern. My own particular health was not ever so bad. You know, it was not a bad. Uh, I wasn't really sick. I didn't feel, you know, I got, I could tell, I would tell I was getting better and not getting worse. That's, you know, That's it good. was good. Have you had that the uh, vaccine? I have. I have Great. had the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Great. And, um, well, good to hear that you're uh, going well. You had to postpone your tour with James Taylor because of the pandemic, not because of your personal health thing, I guess, because of the whole oh, yeah. pandemic no, I situation. Just, no, I was, I was, um, I would have been able to do it, would have been able to go, but you know, I mean, if, if it was just my health, yeah, mine was, I was better right away. I did have a couple of friends who were, who got at the same time I got at the same place, he actually, who were very, very sick. That's a big concern. And my son got it. I got passed it to my son. There was a lot of, you know, I mean, everybody, it wasn't, it's not like, oh, it was nothing. I just mean that I haven't had a, a harrowing escape myself from. Well, that's from good death. to hear. But, but you- I, You've been able to reschedule that tour, haven't you? Yeah, that's that. The tour is now scheduled for um, the end of July, like mm-hmm. July 20th, 28th, like that. Yeah. Hey, Jackson, I've just been listening to the uh, new Lost Lobos album. They do a rather nice cover of Jamaica, so you will. Oh, you did get that. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really beautiful, really nice. It's a great yeah. version. Still going strong, Lost Lobos. Yeah, they're a great band. They're great, you know. So, so, such great musicians and uh, so creative. Jamaica was a lovely world. I played her well. As we lay in the tall grass where the shadows fell. Hiding from the children. So they would not tell We would stay there till the sister rang The evening bell Jamaica say you will Help me find a way to fill These empty hours Say you Tomorrow. Hearing that song, I was wondering how the songwriting process compares these days to when you were younger, when you wrote that song. I mean, 
Theoretically, it should be easier, but I'm not sure that it is ever is. Sometimes uh, it's easy, if, especially if you get a subject or get something that you haven't written about before, or you, or you know, you're, it's e- gives itself to you to, to explore. I I just wrote a song in a very sh- well in a relatively short. A couple of songs on this album were written in a short amount of time, and some of them were written over a long period of time. It's, it varies, and especially I think it's really hard if you're if you're trying to express ideas that are, that are developing. You know, that are not. There's no flashpoint, you know, for the for the feeling you have about it. It's just a gradual understanding of a situation, as you know, or a, I mean, in the case of Downhill from Everywhere, I mean, that's something that I was, you know, I was involved in um, ocean conservation and you know marine protected areas, and I went to the Galapagos with, took part in the TED conference and was you know, so I had a gradual awareness about the health of the ocean and and because on this on this ted it was a ted talk on a on a on a boat in the galapagos and i heard many many oceanographers i mean everybody on there was like an oceanographer and they were talking they were the the you know the the information about the oceans was dire it was so i mean but that was a long time ago to 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 try to put into words what you're feeling and thinking about something like that is a challenge you know because Songs are not easy to to give information to like get a lot of information out. There there has to be about some emotional, yeah. has to be some emotional flashpoint. And uh, in this case, it was hearing this phrase from the oceanographer Doctor Charles um, Captain Charles Moore that the ocean is downhill from everywhere. And it was a very you know it's a very you know I thought right downhill from everywhere. And I it gives it that phrase like that gives itself to being. A, to a song and then writing the song was not so linear it's not really a linear exposition about the health of the oceans but rather juxtaposing and contrasting images from a modern life in which you everything you do impacts the ocean everything we do everything we consume winds up in the ocean like the the uh yeah it winds up in the ocean yeah and everything that's plastic stays around a lot longer than everything that's wood you know this would do fine in the ocean it'd be like you know so that might that's so obvious i suppose but but to describe um the activities that we you know that we take for granted whether it's going to church or going to the mall or mm-hmm. all these things have a relationship with plastic and everywhere you would try to give up plastic in your life and you see that every single thing you do involves some form of consumption of, yeah. of plastic so well, i like yeah. I like the idea of, of, of stringing all these images together without having, you know, without trying to hammer a point home, trying, trying to, you know, it's, it's there if people hear it, you know. You do ask the question, do you think about it at all? And I guess for a while in America there, people didn't want to think about it for four years. Uh, it looks like people are going to start thinking about it again. Maybe your song can help prompt uh, people to think about the, the ocean. Well, they... The, the plight of the ocean has been going on for a long time, and and there are organizations and and scholars and you know uh, um, ocean advocacy groups that have been fighting for the healthy ocean for a long time. So it's not like it it wasn't about the last four years, but the last year four years I think showed us what can happen if you have somebody that in flagrant disregard for every standard and for every impulse to do to preserve the natural world, and you can see how much damage can be done in a very relatively short period of time because i think we had the illusion that as a society we were moving forward 
and that we are getting somewhere. And that is really in dispute. You'd have to, you'd have to really question that now. just reading an old zigzag magazine in fact i've got it right here from january 1977 and there's a there is a fantastic interview there about your early days and you were talking about this recently in an interview with a website about some of the same sorts of things including nico recording your early songs talking about songwriting one of the things that people might not know is your father wanted you to play the trumpet thank goodness you rebelled against it well no i, I did play the trumpet you did? i played yeah i played trumpet for Two or three years. Uh, what he wa- <laughs> I wanted him to show me the, some stuff on the piano. I wanted to play another instrument. I tried to explain to him that it wasn't as cool to pull out a trumpet at my age as it was for him to pull out a trumpet at his age. And I mean, he was from that Dixieland jazz generation where the parties were. I mean, the trumpet players were like the lead guitarists of the day. Or, you know, he would. And I go. To, he'd have parties, and also I'd go with him to jam sessions and. Um, he played piano actually, but at home he liked to he liked to play trumpet. Like probably like the way I play slide guitar. You know, I just <laughs> walk around playing slide, but I don't do it in public necessarily. Oh, I sometimes do. But I mean, yeah, he had a fascination with horn you know, horns and um, had a bunch of them. He had a bunch of great he had a trombone, he had a and he loved Jack Teagarden. And I love Jack Teagarden. One of the things that people might not know uh, and reading this old interview is fascinating is that you did a whole lot of things before you even got to record your first solo album you know you including playing with the nitty-gritty dirt band you went to new york and accompanied nico and then did the opening spot for her you recorded a demo for electra which has become a, a collector's item i might mm. add but but you said it was a terrible demo but you did all these things before you even went in to record your solo album not sure that yeah. a lot of musicians get that same background these days. 
I don't know. I think all musicians really struggle. You know, they really do all kinds of they do all kinds of things to develop and 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 try different avenues of. I mean, this was combined. My going to New York was combined with my my being a kind of a just a freak. You know, like a hippie. My my friends were going to Europe and they needed somebody to share in the gas to drive and drive to New York, and we drove a, straight there. It took us three and one quarter days. We drove all day and all night for three days sharing the driving and sharing the gas and um, then we sat there for i don't know how long because eventually they were looking for this legendary steamer to get to europe and they had already been one of them my friend greg copeland who's a my fellow songwriter who was more or less my mentor one of my mentors in those days and we were staying with the other one steve noonan on his floor They'd already been, he'd already been to Mexico looking for this, this legendary steamer from Veracruz that you could get to Europe by going from Mexico. And uh, in Veracruz is in the Gulf of Mexico. It's on the east coast of Mexico. And it's, got, it's like got access to it, the Atlantic through the Caribbean. And it's got that peninsula that goes way out. And anyway, he had been trying to get to Europe before and then he, did, he didn't make it. He actually wound up in jail. And I wound up with this, I mean, I saw some pictures of me the other day from this period of time wearing this... Uh, Mexican police jacket. I mean, a Mexican, a gray sort of, you know, Mexican overcoat for Veracruz police. God, I wish I still had that. It was, <laughs> I mean, I was like probably had it folded over me twice. I was so skinny. I sort of had made it into a double breasted just by virtue of being, you know, you could have wrapped it around me twice. Anyway, in in New York, they finally did connect with uh, and and get got a uh, got out of there and got I think went to. Amsterdam or Holland or something on a steamer and then and hitchhiked through Europe and through the Middle East and got through Afghanistan. I think my, my friend Greg got as far as Afghanistan, but uh, my friend Adam got as far as India. So that this it, going to New York was part of a kind of a pilgrimage. It wasn't really about going to try to make anything happen. I kind of, re- I, I thought, I thought thing, something might happen at any time, but I didn't know what. That's how the clue, you just, uh, it was total luck that I got the job accompanying Nico. That was because I'd gone to go see Tim Buckley open for her or her, her open for him. I don't know which it was. They both play, played in this bar. And then he, then she offered him a job accompanying her and, and he, he had gigs. He, did, I don't, he said, I don't think she realizes that I'm, you know, I have gigs. I'm like, <laughs> and, um, but he, 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 you know, he told me about this gig and I got it and it didn't last all that long so I was only there for two or three months I think you know mysterious bands Paxton Lodge and Baby Browning that you were in briefly, which sounds well, very intriguing. I was part of a 
I knew a producer in, in, well, I made the demo you talk about, I made with a, with a producer in New York named Peter K. Siegel. And he had produced Earth Opera, which is a great band that had David Grisman and Peter Rowan in it. Mm. I mean, they were just, they, they had some great songs and it was a young band from Boston or Cambridge. And uh, I wanted to work with him. And then I came back to LA and I still wanted to work with him. But before I knew it, I'd been sort of the project he was sharing the production with a, a, a producer in, in, in L.A. named um, Barry Friedman, who then, right around that time, changed his name to Fraser Mohawk. And, and he had produced a couple records that I really liked. I mean, he, he had produced uh, one. He produced The Kaleidoscope, mm-hmm. which, of course, was my introduction to David Lindley. And he had also produced um, the Holy Modal Rounders record that had Sam Shepard playing drums and had some greats. I still know some of these songs. I mean, if you want to be a bird and the werewolf and the takeoff artist song, all these really, I mean, I, I loved, I loved the, those bands and we wound up, oh, and he produced Nico's second album called Marble Index. And that was um, with John Cale doing the arrangements. And I think, you know, a really fine record. So yeah, I'd been to New York and done a, I'd been in the, was in the dirt band when I was in high school. And when I, they were a little older than me, when I got out of high school, I spent a summer gigging with them. And that was really fun. But I always knew that I wanted to make my own records, my own songs. And they were a jug band. They weren't going to sing my song. Then as soon as I left the band, they got a record contract and they needed songs because they, because they were, you know, they, they were really influenced by this, this folk act named, called the Times Square Two. And they were, those guys wore, vintage 20s suits you know and 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 the guys in the dirt band really loved that and we kind of like we kind of would wear these thrift store you know, suits from thrift stores and and play jug band music which was great because i love that music too and my father had been you know such a fan of dixieland jazz that i i really i heard that i heard that kind of music and anyway so so having come back, and that was, but that was all before I went to New York. When I, when I came back from New York, we talked Electra Records into giving us a recording, a remote recording situation in 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 the woods uh, in Northern California. And part of this was the reason we were able to talk them into it was Big Pink, simply the most the, the most groundbreaking, the most sort of powerful roots but progressive you know like really amazing amazing music and i've so on the basis of the idea that if you got in like out in a house in the woods you might come up with something great we talked him into it of course that i I don't know how to summarize this i don't want to go long and tell you too many but we got into all kinds of mischief one of the things i mean they that became a recording facility for lonnie mack for spider john kerner and ray uh Dave Ray, and um, like those two records got made up there. And our record was not really ever, it didn't really gel. It, like we didn't really comprise a really, we weren't the wrecking crew. You know, we couldn't simply play out whatever rec- song was being made that, and make, you know, we were all individual players and everybody played the way they played. And it just suddenly, and instead of having, there were in our band, there were like, there were three songwriters and, or more, and two or three really great guitarists, but we didn't have the acumen. We didn't have the record-making experience. And, you know, there was just a lot of crazy stuff going on, a lot of getting high. And um, 
not just us, but the producer was the highest of them all. And he was, you know, you know, there, there was a huge spectrum of drugs being taken be, between, uh, you know, psychedelic drugs and heroin. And eventually this thing just fell apart. And, 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 and Electra wanted to sort of salvage some of the recording and make one album that they could show, you know, that they could show people what they'd done with the money. They wanted to say, and here's our, here's a record from our recording project, you know. And so they sort of decided to start talking about putting out one record that would have each of us, you know, a song, one or two songs from each of us. And even that couldn't be put together. And eventually, and we were, we were going along with it, but none of us wanted to be in a band with each other. We just wanted to make records. And so eventually we named that project after a child's plot in the local cemetery in which the, in the, in the Browning family plot. And so, and it just said baby on the headstone. It's a tiny, tiny little headstone that said baby. It very, you know, we really, re <laughs> we resonated with that. You know, a stillborn, we were a stillborn band. Like it's nothing really ever happened. We left, they shut that down. Uh, the place we were staying, the house we were in was double, a two-story former hotel that was at alternate, uh, it, it was a, it was an alcohol, al alcoholics rehabilitation place it was a a brothel it was a, a, you know it, it had been many things in the past and we uh you know we 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 kind of covered all the all the all the various i mean we could have used uh well you know we had a we had amazing time and the townspeople it was very rural california and, and we were sort of notorious in the town especially because our eventually our girlfriends got shipped up there jack holzman sprung for a plane to get the get our girlfriends up there and then they sort of scandalized the town by going to town in their leopard skin tights and you know braless and you know it's like it was the 60s it was 1960 i guess well 68 and it lasted about i don't know like a long time nine months Sometimes a friend of mine got married the other day And I heard from back home that they were quite happy But then I overheard someone say You can never be lucky in life and lucky at love and at the same time, expect to be free, expect to be free. And then I remember the barefooted youngster who ran from the preacher's command. Keeping the daydream alive about running. Summer's and warm summer's and As we grew older, this fate would have it. Let's move on to the recording in a completely different circumstance of the new yeah. album, which I assume was, was that done in your recording studio? Yeah. Inside? Okay. So you've recorded the new album prior to the pandemic, but what, you had to finish it? sort of during the pandemic how, how did that work we tracked everything we didn't hadn't i don't ha, i didn't have a finished album i was just on a 
on a schedule to finish that required, I, I needed another couple months to finish, but we had to stop. So we had to stop and wait at least, I think I waited at least four months before I could record the, the last song and, and then begin to overdub, you know, fi finished vocals. And in some cases I, I made some changes in what I recorded before the pandemic. And the, re the release date had only been, had been missed, you know, I mean, to release in October, I would have to return it in by June at the latest. So I hadn't made that. So I, I was able to take my time really. It was in a way, the pandemic was a gift of a kind of calm, a clarity, you know. You've been lucky enough over your career to work with some amazing musicians and this band that you've taken into the recording studio is no exception. It's basically a touring band, isn't it? With with Greg and Val and Bob Glaub and Jeff yeah. Young, Mauricio on drums. This is, uh, I can't imagine that would have taken them very long to record because they're such an experienced outfit. We have a lot of years playing together now and it's what I always wanted was a band that, you know, knew each other. Before before Val, I mean, before Val in the, was in the band, or be, I mean, Val was in there longer than Greg, but I mean, in a way, the, the rhythm section, I mean, Fritz, Mauricio was there and Jeff was there a long time ago. So we've all played together in various combinations. Val was there for a while with Mark Goldenberg and I. I love what Val did with Mark because Mark already had a lot of this guitar, a lot of the solos, a lot of the parts nailed you know he basically had him you know he's such a great composer and he's also such a great improviser but but val's job in that in that band like say in early 90s was to respond to mark that showed me something that i really valued and, and wanted to keep and that is that i mean val's incredibly you know and he was in that band for a while and he went on to do some other stuff but but when we got back together again, he was sort of the the, the initial guitarist on a on a tour I did uh, with um, with Mauricio and him and the Watkins family. Hour. I don't know if you know them, mm. Sarah and Sean Watkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they shot, Sarah was opening, and of course her brother Sean is either alternates between being in a band with her or them doing their solo projects. And they had this great uh, bass player friend, um, multi instrumentalist Tyler Chester, and. So they were the opening act, and we just sort of became a band. That's really what happened. Is we were able to sing, do the last, you know, third of my set with a full band, a brilliant band. And Tyler was able to play. He can play bass and piano at the same time, for instance. I mean, there was some stuff that he did that was kind of, you know, stunning. And then, and then I play with 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 I play with Sarah and Sean in their band sometimes. The Watkins family. I just sit in with them. So we had a lot of hours together doing that. And then we also. I also sit in with Val's band, so it was very family. And um, we all, as a as a, the band that's on this record, has de developed over a period of time. But also, I've gone out for whole tours with Greg Lees. And um, the the cool thing about this band is Greg and Val really have great chemistry. They play off of each other incredibly well, and they it happens spontaneously all the time. They neither of them play the same solo twice, and but they listen to each other and support each other in the. In, to the same degree always so you know it's really a great a great band for me because the, the songs stay fresh you released some of the songs during the uh, pandemic during the lockdown and uh, one of those songs was a human touch which you recorded with a fantastic singer called leslie mendelson 
was that for the documentary 5B? It, it was the documentary I know was about the San Francisco General Hospital AIDS ward during the early 80s. We haven't seen it out here. I don't know. May, maybe it's on Netflix. I haven't I haven't seen it. But can you tell us about how you teamed up with Leslie, who's got her own recordings out? Yeah. The director of the film, Paul Haggis, suggested that I write a song for this end credits and and said he thought he knew somebody that would make might make a great person to do a duet with. He he heard it as a duet and um, one of those great intuitive, maybe it was a for him a cinematic idea, but he he guessed really right. I told him I didn't think I had time to do it and um, that he should move on and find someone else. And he said, well, we'll wait for you. You know, I told him I was making a record and I didn't know when I'd have the time to do it. He said, we'll wait. And <laughs> what happened was that Leslie just started writing, writing the song with Steve McEwen. And when they, when they had something that they liked, they sent it to me to see if I wanted to add anything or if I wanted to sing it. Or, and I was really knocked out with what they had. And I thought, wow. You know, because Steve, is, he's, a, he's a great writer. He writes a lot of songs in collaboration with people who are gonna, who then record them, you know? Mm -hmm. So he was set up to work that way. I had never really done it. We became really fast friends. We, I mean, we really became good friends. I, I love these two dearly and they both live in New York and I got to hang with them in New York. I got to hang with them in New Mexico once I got to, um, I mean, when we did a video of this, this song, I did it in New Mexico because my son was there and I wanted him to film it. And, uh, they both came out, and then another time, two, several times, he's come. They've come out to New York. I mean, L.A. together, and um, I think, <laughs> and we went to go see Leslie open for the Who in Las Vegas, which was great. I mean, Leslie's really got wonderful stage presence. She could, she's comfortable. What can I yeah. say? She's a, she's a, she's comfortable opening for the Who with an acoustic guitar. She's just badass. You know, she's a terrific singer and just really charming and and funny. And, and like just at home, she's at home on stage. People adored her and we, um, thing about the getting to work with them is, and the reason this is probably a song, I, I, a record I could put on my record, um, on my album without recutting for myself. Well, there's two reasons. I can't really sing the song myself because it was written as a duet. They literally left me the second verse and I had to find a different melody than hers. So her first verse is the melody that she's got. And the second verse is, in a different range and it's just written i just wrote that melody for the words that were there and then changed those the, the verse somewhat too so without going too deep into how we wrote it it was a true true collaborative experience and and um so many of steve's lines are moved me so much i just think the best lines of this song are, are his but i did build in a kind of uh i extended the, the chorus a little bit to you know to uh to say what I wanted to say, um, to add to to what they had said, you know. And I, I also kind of took, I, you know, when I write, I cross-examine myself a lot. I really have to, I argue with myself about whether I, whether what I've said is, you know, whether it makes sense or whether or not people are going to get what I'm talking about. You know, mm -hmm. I really sort of examine it. And so I did that with some of Steve's lines, and I I changed a couple of his lines, but really. Um, the result was that what he had written just, you know, it just popped. It was, you know. So that song is not just about an AIDS ward. It's really about something more universal. What If you take the first two lines, you can call it a decision. I say it's what, it's, I say it's how we're made. It sort of encapsulates the whole argument that the right has with the left about 
gay rights. You, if you wanted to change, you could. You're gay because you just decided to be gay and you could change, you could heal yourself, come to Jesus, you know, heal yourself, change it, be, be do right, you know? And whereas, you know, gay people say, I'm the way I am, I'm the way God made me, the same way you're the way God made you. And so that, that gets laid out so, so economically in the first couple of lines. It was, pleased me no end. It was just like, that's so great. Uh, and uh, so it turns out, you know, to even to sing it, to sing, I sing the same lines as a heterosexual. It means the same thing. You can call it a decision. I say it's how I'm made. I just didn't decide to be heterosexual. It's the way I'm made. Same way as if I were gay. It's the way I'm. It's so like I, I love the song for the universality of what's said in it, and especially some of the most moving lines to me. Like everybody wants a holiday, everybody wants to feel the sun, get outside and run around, live like they're forever young. Now I love that. That gives me chills. And Steve wrote that, you know, and he wrote, "Everybody wants to be beautiful," and that is true. That's really true. Yeah. And I added the line and live life their own way because I think I needed to you know, put the underpinnings of the question again, the, the, the debate, the debated question about whether or not you can live the way you want to live. And uh, especially I was so moved by the movie that that's the thing is that the movie is so good. I didn't know if I could do it justice. I'm so glad that it went down the way it did, because I, I do think that the song does the movie justice. And I couldn't I couldn't have written it by, by myself. It's not a song I could have come up with myself. Another song that has some guests on it, I can't pronounce the name of this group, but it's is the the Dreamer, which is a constant theme in what's well, been a theme in America over the last few years. I, I guess it's been a theme for decades, dating back to maybe before Woody Guthrie's Deportees. Yeah. But um, can you tell us about that song because that is so timely? By the way, you pronounce it Senzontless. Oh, okay, Senzontless, and it means the mockingbirds. I'm glad you said that. What you said about it being an issue for many years because, yeah, Woody Guthrie wrote Deportees about the migrant workers that were killed in a plane crash in, the, I guess it was in the 40s or the 50s, you know, and how even then they were just called deportees. They were being deported for not having the proper papers. The thing is that, you know, 
People come from Mexico for the same reasons people come from Norway. My grandmother came from Norway. She came for a better life. Farm she grew up in couldn't support six children. And one person inherited, the oldest brother inherited the farm, and everybody else had to go find something else. And my grandmother came here when she was 16. The girl in the song came here when she was 12, and I actually know her. Eugene, when I met Eugene, I showed him a song that I had tried to get started quite a few years ago, more than 20 years ago, probably 30 years ago. And it was about vigilantes on the border, the the Ku Klux Klan and the Minutemen and the people that were armed, you know, personally arming themselves and, and, and personally enforcing the immigration laws on the border, you know. And they say to do that and to say it was to, to, to promote law and order, of course, is absurd and ironic. And I thought it was a good, good basis for a song, but I could never get it going because it really wasn't about people that I admire, you know. I always, I, 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 when I met Eugene and showed him the song, he began writing these lines about the girl that was on the session with us, with David Hidalgo and uh, the two singers in Los Sazones, Fabiola and Lucina. And Lucina came when she was 12 to, be, to, to join her father who had come north to work. And it used to be that migrant workers would go back and forth. But the more uh, strict the immigration policies became, it became more practical for people to come north and just stay and work and stay, send the money home. You do, you go where you go. You go where you go to, to support where the work is, where the, and, and we need those migrant workers. And we need immigrants. My country needs them. And I love, I love that Australia has had its waves of immigration and that it's built, I've read a couple really great op-eds in Australian papers about the need for immigration and the value that immigrants have brought to your country as well. And I've, mm. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's really a transfusion of new blood and of new DNA. And so it's just so absurd that, the, that there's this xenophobic fear. Can you imagine this? I mean, in a, in a, in a place like Louisiana, which may be like, like very strictly Baptist, right? They worry about the suddenly cropping up of the, the here and there, a Catholic church or a church that serves Latin American immigrants. You worried about people who are going to church? Yeah. The fuck is wrong with you? Those people... I don't know, man. It, it would make me laugh if it didn't make me so fucking mad. So I just, um, I think that these, that the, the that um, for growing up in California, I've, I've, I've known Mexican American people my whole life. My, my earliest friends were Mexican, and um, I always felt a deep connection with Mexican culture, and also a kind of a gulf that I've always wanted to bridge. Even, I mean, especially because. Mexican girls are so beautiful, and I I knew so many in school that I probably didn't have the cultural, you know, underpinnings, the kind of understanding, you know, to, to well, it's hard enough to be friends with girls when you're like 14 and 15. It's, it's really, it was absurdly, it was impossible. But I was, I was like, I, you might, you might enjoy knowing, like, I was in a choir in seventh grade. Seventh grade, you're like, whatever, I was I like 12? No, yeah, I'm in 12 or something, or, thir- or 12 or 13. I was in the cl- I was in this choir with these amazing Chicana girls. They were so they na- they had names like Chunky and Butterball. They were like they had they were the foxiest, sauciest, most beautiful Mexican girls, and they were nice to me. They were like 
And their their boyfriend, they were, they all went with guys that were much older than me. Like probably going to get with guys in high school. They're then the seventh or eighth grade, and I'm you know. And I still remember one, one of them that I was absolutely smitten with, and she was her name was Gina, and I was really like I didn't I couldn't talk around her. I couldn't, but we could sing. We spent you know we spent time singing in class, and um, that was very liberating for me. When I, I told my father I was going to take choir, he said, I mean chorus chorus class, what they call it. He looked at me like not only like. Did his expression, and by the way, I look just like my father at the moment. I'm, I'm seeing myself, same like, I see his face looking at me like, chorus? Why are you taking chorus? And he's both saying, you can't sing, can you? And then the other one was like, why, are you, why aren't you in the band? Why aren't you playing a trumpet? You know, why don't you playing a chorus? And so, but I liked singing. I liked it. I could hear it. I could hear these intervals. I liked doing it. I liked the sound we all made together. Mm. It's funny, I've never really... Uh, talked about this but it was really my my introduction to singing was in a in a in a chorus in, in school yeah just a child when she crossed the border to reunite with her father who had traveled north to support her so many Left half her family behind With a crucifix to remind her She pledged her future to this land And does the best that she can back to something like Linda Paloma early on. You know, that influence has been there from right from the early albums, hasn't it, that yeah. Mexican influence? Yeah. Well, Linda Paloma I wrote as a tribute to, I mean, my my first wife was a, we, we spent the first month we knew each other in Mexican bars and restaurants and, and, and she was really beautiful and the band would always, you know, sing to her. The, the, the mariachis would, you know, and she and she had a favorite song called Cucurucucu, La Paloma. And uh, she always asked them to sing it, and they would sing it to her. It was a whole thing. They would flirt like crazy with her. And uh, that song, Paloma, you know, that, that's built into the song. That song, you know, Linda Paloma. Linda means beautiful or pretty. So that, yeah, I did a version of a kind of a, a, a Paloma. Paloma is a dove, of course. Mm. And uh, so I wrote a kind of Paloma song for her because of that, you know. At the moment the music began And you heard the guitar player starting to sing You were filled with the beauty that ran through it you imagined Dreams 
some big issues there the album does deal with really big issues i mean that we mentioned that song about the dreamers being timely and then there's until justice is real you've obviously spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about these issues because they basically dominate the album don't they yeah well they it's what i read about you know brian i i read a lot i don't i don't read to try to like put stuff in the songs but i'm interested and i'm you know, like I spent the afternoon listening to a Tanahisi Coates lecture. Do you know you know about him? No. He's he's a former contributor to the Atlantic Monthly, mm-hmm. and he's a very very uh, respected young essayist. And he's he wrote a book called Between the World and Me, and another book called We Were Eight Years in Power. And I think, and as an essayist, he's really been he's been compared to James Baldwin, and Although I just heard him sort of refute that, you know, in this in this in this in this uh, wonderful um, speech or interview that I that I, that I got the guy I got to listen to. So I mean, I also listen to radio, uh, like public affairs on the radio. One of the great public affairs radio shows in the United States is a former Australian named uh, Ian Masters, mm. and I, he's from a family of journalists in Australia. Yeah, one of the, you guys, your journalism is really strong. You know, I mean. We have a little. We have, we have some strong journalists too. But I, I noticed that, like I, t- I asked Peter Garrett one time, like how he got so political, and he said, well, he came from a family of lawyers, hmm. and he said, in my family, if you opened your, if you, if you spoke up to say anything at the dinner table, for instance, you really had to back up what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. You really had to, you had to know your stuff. And so. Um, I think there's that seriousness in in Australia and in, in Australian journalism and and especially in politics in a way in which I don't I mean maybe that's such a general it might be a, a big generalization but I I know it from my Australian family too there's a seriousness that I really admire.
I read way too many books by musicians, music memoirs and that, but some of them are really, really good. I've recently read the Ricky Lee Jones oh, yeah. Last Chance uh, Texaco, and I've read uh, Richard Thompson's book Beeswing, which is just fabulous. I have that. I'm, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been glancing through that, and I'm. That is, back. Is, that is great. great. That is great. Now, how come you haven't written a memoir? Because <laughs> you would be the perfect one to do it. Because I was, I was thinking yesterday. Nobody's really. I mean, there've been books about you know California rock and everything that scene, a Laurel Canyon, all that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. you would be almost the perfect person to write a memoir. Does is that? Uh, it must have crossed your mind. Oh yeah, yeah, I've thought about it. <laughs> so people must have approached you for years. For years, people have suggested. I mean, over over the time, a number of times, people have. There have been people who have very made a case for it and been very persuasive. But I like writing so much that I would have to become a better writer to do it. I'd have to, it'd have to be really well written. I couldn't do it as told to kind of book. And I, and I, and a friend of mine who's actually a documentarian filmmaker said, well, don't you know that like a lot, a lot of the stuff is done by, done vocally, it's done by interview. And then you sort of transcribe and edit. And because he noticed that I, like I talk my head off, but I don't necessarily, I can't write a postcard, you know? So he suggested I start banking interview, as he put it. He says, you should start banking interviews. You should just like at a regular interval, sit down and talk about, you know, or let somebody interview you, let somebody, some, somebody that you that wants to know what you have to say, talk to you. And so that could do that. It might, it might be time to do something like that. I, I the early times, Earlier on, when that was proposed to me, like in the '80s and and the '90s, I just thought, oh, it's not time, not time. Reading this zigzag interview from January '77, there's some fantastic stuff in there that people just didn't don't know about, and you know, sort of the things that you did. It'd be fascinating to have mm. it in more detail, and you know, yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess it's a commitment of time. I know that Richard Thompson co-wrote the book. I think he started doing an interview, doing a Q&A type thing, and then he just said, it's not working. Let me write it, and then you can help me shape it into into oh, a book. Yeah. You know. Oh, good. Well, that's good to know. I, know. I know that Bruce Coburn's memoir was done in uh, with a collaborator mm. by him, and that book is great, the Rumors of Glory. I, I, I was going to say, I don't write, I don't read very many of, like, you know, musicians' books. I, mean, I haven't gotten through very. I don't. I don't know why. I haven't really read the the major ones. You know that that I and I own some of them. Just don't have the time. I don't think. You know, it's just that there's so little time to play. So little time to. Um, I don't know when they do this. When do they sit and decide to recount their? I think a lot of them have done it during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, it's worth a thought. I'll think about. It. <laughs> I came for came looking for grace and found my reflection in every passing face and everyone who gathered standing on that shore searching the horizon not knowing what exactly
just a little soon to say put most of what you're thinking about into your songs really and this album is certainly uh, deals as I said with heavy subjects and so you know there's a there's a lot in there to digest and there's a lot that you've been thinking about that you want to impart to people yeah the process is uh, the process is one of like letting things gestate letting thoughts you know gestate and, and thinking about it or even once I have an idea it takes a long time to sort of try different I mean uh, I recently I wrote a song in a very short time and basically a song about it's a, it's actually a song I wrote for a movie that I'm involved in as a producer of of, of about drummers and about becoming a drummer and uh, this song is like I, mean, I thought oh, this would be a great we, so the movie needs a, a song about a drummer about a girl that becomes a drummer and, and that was really fun and I've played with some of the great drummers. Mm. I mean, I played with Jim Keltner, I played with Jim Gordon, played with Russ Conkle, and uh, played with Pete Thomas, played with Jay Bellaros now. There's like, but it's funny, I don't really know very much about it. I don't. I found this out as I started to help with this movie. I thought, fuck, I don't know anything. I've always just, um, you could say, I've always relied on the kindness of drummers. I mean, they just have done what they do without my knowing what the hell that is, you know? Mm. It took make, making a record with a drummer that didn't wasn't as good. I played with Russ Conkle for a long time, and it was just magic. Everything he did sounded incredible, and I didn't know how you know. And I had an incredible array of choices that I could make based on the fact that he can make any of them sound good. And then I then I made a record with a drummer that was you know it's just he was a good drummer in a lot of respects, but for me he was less of a song drummer. And he was a little too technical and like the, his drumming was a little bit busy in, in ways, a little mm. less elemental. And, uh, and that was a real education for me. That was, all right, how do I save this? Because it was not, it's not going well. And we did good. Anyway, some of what we did, I did with him was good, but, but uh, some of uh, other stuff just wouldn't come right. And, and I realized, fuck, the problem is that the guy in charge, me, doesn't know enough. <laughs> Sometimes the secret to good drumming is, you know, when you don't notice the drummer, you know. This. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. You don't want to. I'm, 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 I'm not really into flashy stuff anyway. Or it's the, like really, there are times when you need. It certainly is a certain kind of prowess, but it's not the drummy stuff. It's not the like incredible. I mean, I listen to something on the the it came, you know, magically like what what comes on my phone. Yeah. I'm, like when I'm driving, I have a choice between the radio and, and my phone. And sometimes it, I just turn on the phone and there'll be something on it playing. And I thought, I don't even know how you do it. Because sometimes I go to my phone and I can't get it to, any, to play anything. So I'm just helpless when it comes to that technology. But I heard this great David Bowie track. He's evidently in my phone. I don't know how he got there. But <laughs> I obviously downloaded a David Bowie album that I don't even know I have. I mean... It wasn't one of his, this, it, it, was a, it was live in Detroit. No, no, it's called Panic in Detroit. It was recorded at the Nassau Coliseum. It was a live album. And I didn't really, I wasn't that crazy about the song, but in the middle of the song, they go into this very long drum solo. And I thought, that's really fascinating. Because I sort of grew up laughing at drum solos. I didn't think, oh man, yeah. I'm now listen to some guy. It's like you have, now we have to listen to somebody practice or something. You know, I just didn't think that that's, that didn't serve the song at all. But the the longer it went on, the more incredible it became. And I thought, oh, well, actually, this is a thing. This is actually 
thrilling. And I realized, I, I, and you could hear the audience going nuts at everything he did. And there was some, there was some, a display of drumming prowess that, so it has its place. The drum solo, the, the display of your drumming yeah. chops has its place, but it's usually not in, you know, in, in a song. <laughs> it's just drumming music. Hey, let me ask you one more thing. You've, you were quoted as saying, you've seen the, I see the writing on the wall, you said. I know there's only so much time left in my life, but I now have an amazing, beautiful grandson. And you say, I feel more acutely than ever the responsibility to leave him a world that's inhabitable. And I've, I've felt the same thing, but what do we do about it? Oh, well, you know, um, I think that we're experiencing... Um, uh, in the in 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 the in the opinion of Paul Hawken, the great environmentalist and writer, that we're experiencing one of the greatest mass movements in the history of humanity, mm-hmm. which is the, the the many faceted and many pronged, many front effort to save the planet, to save our world. What my son, my oldest son, tells me is, this is what we're good at. This is what humans are actually good at at recognizing some danger and then finding some way around it. And while I think it's getting very late and we might not have the same world we, we want or the same world we, that we have grown up thinking is our ideal planet. Indeed, the, the, the writer Dar Jamal says, um, we're not just heading for the precipice, we've gone over it. And we are in free fall. And now it's a matter of mitigating the, the consequences and, and dealing, managing what's happening to the planet and what's happening to our, our, our species. So it's not just our species, by the way, not just what's happening to our species, but we're, we're causing the, the uh, extinction yeah, of many exactly. species. And yet, the, like I heard another thing on the radio the other day where a guy was talking about being uh, at, at a university in which he wasn't in the department, but he was, his department was right next to the AI department. And he was talking about how AI's central idea Artificial intelligence, the central idea is to try to create an entity that can self-correct. He says, the only one there is so far is a human being. So with that in mind, I think, well, maybe we'll find some way to self-correct or maybe we'll mutate into something else. I mean, I can make a case for the mutation right here. Like this might causing me to mutate. And I, I couldn't even text. I don't think I could have. I don't think I even used a text until about, I remember when I asked a friend of my, my nephew's, what are you doing? You know, and she was like texting. She said, I'm texting. I said, she's not just my friend of my nephew. She was actually the little sister of my, my singer, Siobhan. I said, what are you doing? 
some texting. I said, isn't that kind of long? Like, like and, I, and I didn't know how useful it was. And of course, now I'm, I would be, I need it, but not, not for the social media stuff, just for the convenience of being able to communicate with somebody that I, it's not right there. It's like better than a walkie-talkie, which I, what I, what I coveted when I was a little kid, you know, to be able to communicate. And also the thing about texting, of course, is you don't have to do it in real time. So it's, it's like a board, it's like a message center. It's like all that stuff, the way in which we communicate and the way in which we get things done has now really changed because of the pandemic. Now we really are making use of that. And people aren't, I think what's going to happen is that people are not going to have to show up at a central location for work. Yeah, well, they, people have been working at home here a lot, and you know, and a lot of people are still working at home, even though we can go back to work if we wanted to. There's a great uh, woman I know from the radio station I um, listen to a lot, and I haven't realized, but she's in Australia. She's doing her work from. Yeah. She lives in Australia now, and I think yeah. Christine, you live in Australia, and I think that you're you're raising money for the radio station here in LA, but you're actually, you know, not in LA, and I think that that very thing you know just changes everything it just changes everything that you don't have to be where you say you are <laughs> anyway i better let you go it's been great to talk to you and really great to talk to you again and uh look forward to seeing you sometime Hopefully. soon i hope something jackson brown from his latest album downhill from everywhere i hope you enjoyed our conversation with jackson brown and the tracks that i was able to play for you from the latest album included the title track along with a human touch on which he sings with leslie mendelson the dreamer with los saisons until justice is real and a little too soon to say and as well as that we heard los lobos interpreting jamaica say you will from their latest album native sons these days from nico jackson's song recorded by nico the ballad of baby browning by jack wills released on 
Electra Records, the loan released by Jack, one of the Electra Records Paxton Lodge artists, along with the likes of Jackson and Ned Doheny. It's a rare 1969 promo copy, apparently. Apparently, Graham Parsons was playing on that track. Uh, Linda Paloma from Jackson's 1976 album, The Pretender, and Panic in Detroit, David Bowie, recorded live in 1974 with uh, Tony Newman on drums and Pablo Rosario on percussion. As I said, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jackson Brown on this week's Rhythms podcast. I'll be back with you again next week with another podcast. Don't forget to check out Rhythms, rhythms.com.au. If you want to subscribe to the print magazine or the digital version of the magazine, then you'll find all the details there. Thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you next time.